think if you had to go back and look at one event that has changed tactical combat casualty care, forward surgery, damage control surgery, pre-hospital care, it's probably going to come out of this one battle of battle Mogadishu because so much work has, has been generated from, from those lessons learned. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode of War Docs, we partnered with the Excelsior Surgical Society and the American College of Surgeons to bring you content highlighting unique aspects of military medicine. This talk was presented to the Excelsior Society membership in June of 2023 by Dr. Warren Dorlack. He describes some significant innovations in combat casualty care lessons learned from the last two decades at war. Dr. Dorlack is a trauma surgeon at the Medical Center of the Rockies and the University of Colorado Health. He's active in the leadership of the American College of Surgeons, serving as vice chair for the Surgeons Committee on Trauma and chair of the Regional Committees on Trauma. He has had a distinguished Air Force career with multiple deployments to combat zones and on humanitarian missions. Find out more about Dr. Dorlack and our previous guests on our website, wardocspodcast.com. It is my absolute honor and privilege to introduce our distinguished guest speaker, Dr. Warren Dorlack. A lot of us have a lot of interesting and different experiences, depending on where you were at at that time, and it's going to change your experience that you had. So the guys early on in 2003 may have had a much more austere sort of experience and uh, compared to the folks that participated there between 2009 and, and 2012. In 2009, there was a huge buildup. And this is in May of 2009. That was actually my involvement with the JTTS at that time. That's when I arrived into country. Things had been fairly steady for a while. And then starting in that time period, things really significantly ramped up. So let's talk about the one good pre-hospital effort that's been done. And this is really the Ranger Regiment. And the Ranger model has been really the first in has really tried to lead the way on this, and that is trying to eliminate preventable death in the pre-hospital setting on the battlefield. The paper by Russ Cutwalls from 2011 compared preventable deaths in the pre-hospital setting from the Ranger Regiment and compared that to the standard services. And those numbers have been fairly well validated in a number of efforts to include one by Brian Eastridge on what we think is still preventable death. What the Rangers focused on was really, it was a command-directed focus, and it focused on a number of different things in terms of the mastery of the basics, and then mm -hmm. continuous rehearsals, continuous repetition, to where these things were just part of every exercise, every combat movement that occurred. If you look at the case fatality ratio, you can see that the ratio if you were cared by Ranger Regiment Medic, was significantly lower. And I think what this has done for us is really sort of set the bar that trying to sustain a zero preventable death on the battlefield is potentially possible. We think that it's not, think that the Rangers have shown that it is potentially possible. 
a briefing that we did with uh, Secretary Gates showed the impact of what his golden hour had on the pre-hospital setting and how that affected outcomes. What they tried to do was anticipate what the outcome would have been without the Secretary of Defense mandate, suggesting that we need to have all of our casualties from the time of injury to the time that they get to surgical care under an hour. We were about 90 minutes at the time that the mandate was made. Again, that's falling back into that May of 2009 time period. And if you estimated where we were and where we ended up, there were potentially, this number has varied in different views of looking at this, but still maybe 350 lives that were saved by this increase, expediting the care to get patients to surgical care sooner. But suffice it to say that this has been another sort of major push that trying to get patients that are hemorrhaging to surgical care makes a difference. Makes sense in the civilian world. You see patients that arrive to your trauma center within 10 minutes of getting injured, sometimes have catastrophic injuries. Their left ventricle may be completely blown away, yet somehow they survive alive for that first 10 minutes. So it does often change the types of patients that you're going to get in terms of the severity of, it, of injury. Talk a little bit about Medivac. This has been a lot of work that has been done by a lot of people. But Bob Mabry is the guy that we're going to highlight here. But suffice it to say what we were doing with the presence of air superiority. And so that's one of these things what I'll say is, is really a historical point because Right now, Ukrainians, for instance, fighting what would be a peer-to-peer for us, don't have the same capabilities for Kazovac and intertheater moves that, that we have enjoyed. And so pushing surgical capability forward is something that has been done. And I can tell you from a recent meeting with a Ford surgical team from the Ukrainian side that they are within seven kilometers at times of the heavy fighting. So they're clearly within artillery range. But continuous in-route care is something that needed to be provided at all different levels of this. And so we've had a huge emphasis, thanks to General Carlton, on our intra-theater and inter-theater. But our earlier care was still being provided primarily by EMT basics or EMT intermediates and not provided by paramedics, which is really the standard of care in the civilian world. There were 10 years of after-action reports that Bob Mabry reviewed, and essentially every single one of them, these are units that had been deployed on their after-action reports. Every one of them commented on the extreme nature of injuries and the lack of critical care training and experience by the medics that were being put out there. And often some of these casualties were so sick that it required to pull in nurses and on occasion physicians to help with the transport of those patients from one role to the next. Bob Mabry looked at the 48 mortality if you were cared by a critical care flight paramedic versus if you were cared by an EMT basic or EMT intermediate. The EMT basic or intermediate was really the standard of practice by the army. And what he identified was that there was a big mortality difference in between these two groups. And he used 48 hour mortality 
because a lot of these casualties were host nation and it was not possible to get a longer mortality outcomes. But we also chose the 48-hour mortality because you thought that that might be more reflective of the care that was provided at the point of injury and during the transport. He pulled the light paramedic group. Most of these were reservist and looked at, they were sandwiched in between two cohorts, one beforehand and one after uh, the same FP because the theater had been changing, right? So there was differences in the theater. And so he wanted to try and capture that. And what he showed was the injury severity score of the deaths of the U.S. deaths only, though, because those are the ones we really had best debt on. And what he showed was that casualties were done with relatively low injury severity scores, still over 15, but under the 25 that some people use as a severe mark, whereas those patients that were being cared for by the flight paramedics had a much better mortality, and the patients that they had died were clearly more injured. So the outcome from that event was that, and I think, again, another thing that we should strive to, and that is that all U.S. Army flight medics got pushed up to be trained as EMT paramedics, in addition to undergoing the flight paramedic certified training. Obviously, the challenge for us is how are we going to maintain this and maintain skills, especially if we don't have some major combat operations ongoing. I want to switch over and talk a little bit about damage control. The USS Cole, which the phrase damage control has been borrowed from the Navy. We use it in surgery to talk about what we can do to sort of get the patient stabilized. A military damage control surgery is something that we had talked about prior to Iraq and Afghanistan. We had practiced it. It was being practiced in the civilian world. Ben Eisman and Gene Moore published a paper in 2003 before we went into Iraq and Afghanistan. And they said that on the basis of experience in civilian trauma centers and combat casualty management, we question the suggested role of damage control surgery during wartime. Damage control surgery will be impractical for some in use in a forward military unit during times of war. And part of the reason for them saying that was that the take care of these patients that you really do damage control surgery on, they're the sickest of the sick. And how are you going to ensure that what the surgeon at the first operation identified as important, how are, the, how are you going to ensure that that information gets passed on or that the next guy is going to follow through with the same maybe commitment that the first patient had or the first surgeon had? So we know that civilian trauma centers are different than the military trauma centers. You know, in civilian trauma centers, obviously this is being tasked a little bit more now with our mass shootings around the country, but civilian trauma centers often have very few patients, but they really have often unlimited resources, especially if you're at a level one or two facility. Where the military mass casualty resources are far more limited, our holding capacity is significantly limited, and the potential for really limited numbers certainly exists. And we used to see from mosque bombings and things back in 2006, seven in Iraq, where we would get 80 or 90 casualties during one event. So it's very different. So how do you provide surgery, surgical care in a forward combat setting, such as a, as a role two? So one of the things, and Don Jenkins was sort of popularized this phrase, and that is a tactical abbreviated surgical control. So 
this is where you're utilizing damage control concepts, maybe not necessarily because of physiologic exhaustion of your casualty, but more from a resource limitation, time, supplies, ability to hold the patient, ability to manage the patient in the critical care setting. Maybe you didn't have, have the expertise, or maybe you had the surgical expertise to do a vascular repair, but you didn't have the blood bank behind you to, to support you for that. So tactical abbreviated damage control surgery was, was being practiced by uh, all the forward surgical teams and almost became really uh, relatively a mandate, sort of standard casualty with a temporary abdominal closure device placed in the pre-hospital setting. Something that was utilized, something that was actually utilized relatively effectively for, to allow for immediate life-saving interventions to be performed and really nothing more to push casualties through the field. Some of the Navy surgeons that were assigned to Fallujah during the second battle of Fallujah really practiced this to the textbook and had great outcomes by doing it. So... Sometimes their casualties were being passed through seven, eight, nine different teams. If you include the transport teams that were taking care of them, yet some of those casualties had phenomenal outcomes in part because they were practicing damage control by the textbook during that initial operation. So I think it is possible to do and utilize damage control techniques, but you got to be thoughtful at how, how it's done. And we went into 2003 without a trauma system. So clearly in 2003, your outcome probably was not going to be as, as good as it was in 2004, further beyond. Switch gears and talk a little bit about craniectomy, something that's been well popularized in the military for penetrating brain injury. Really, these were damage control craniectomies at times but really enforcing some of the basic same principles, early debridement, early washout, trying to get some kind of scalp closure, and then a brief period of antibiotics. Damage-controlled craniectomy is something that has been practiced by the neurosurgeons for a lot of penetrating brain injuries. Our military experience, for instance, was far different taking care of penetrating brain injuries than our civilian experience was even at Cincinnati which is level one trauma center, but practicing these sort of basic tenets of damage control craniectomy had some significant outcome differences. The paper by Joe DeBose looking at outcomes of traumatic brain injured, comparing from the joint trauma data to the National Trauma Data Bank. And what he was able to show was that military casualties tended to have better or more intracranial pressure monitoring, which tended to be more aggressive had craniectomies, major operations, damage control sort of operations. And that when he compared mortality for penetrating brain injuries, there was a significant difference between the joint trauma patients' outcomes and those from the National Trauma Database. If we look at penetrating brain injuries, the paper done by the primarily the group out of Bethesda, looking at where at the time from 2003 to 2012, essentially every penetrating brain injury casually passed through the institution. And looking at some of the long-term outcomes, we often think, and this was sort of the, the feeling by the neurosurgeons at the University of Cincinnati group, was that 
patients with penetrating brain injury don't do particularly well. And that's true. So the military ones that survived to make it in this paper was a really well-defined group. So they had to survive all the way back to Bethesda, first of all. So a lot of casualties died in route. So it's a really sub-select group of casualties. But I think what the bottom score shows is that no matter what their GCS was, these casualties improved throughout their recovery phase. And when they were followed two years out, casualties continued to have improvements in their Glasgow outcome scores. Really, on a, every six months, there was an improvement that was seen. And so looking at early outcomes for traumatic brain injury may not necessarily be the thing that we should be looking for. And maybe trying to get these longer-term outcomes would give us a better idea. But suffice it to say, practicing of damage controls, craniectomy, and aggressive neurosurgery was something that has been pushed by the military. And these are some of the outcomes that have shown for that. Switching gears again, looking at some of the work done by our vascular surgeon group, looking at temporary vascular shunts. These have been popularized in the civilian world, been used in Alaska for years to transport patients down to the University of Washington, for instance. And Todd Rasmussen, Darren Klaus, and a number of other military vascular surgeons studied the military experience and really have demonstrated that both arterial and venous shunts make a huge difference. Earlier papers by Rasmussen showing that really in the proximal locations, both in the upper arm and proximal in the lower extremity, those had an excellent patency. Early on, there were not as many venous shunts that were being utilized. Follow-up paper by Gifford showed that the venous shunts and the venous injuries that were being managed had significantly changed. And I think it has become clear to most of us that if you have, especially combined injuries, that venous repair associated with your vascular arterial repair the venous repair makes a difference. There's less swelling in the limb, and it's been associated with improved limb salvage. Another landmark paper that came out from Heather Hancock and the group out at Lackland Air Force Base, their research lab, and looking at the effects of shunts using a porcine model and a vascular injury on the hind limb. And what they showed was if the animal was not in shock at the time. We often think we have six hours to get revascularization, but this looks at loss of neuromuscular function. And I think what they showed, there's significant loss of neuromuscular function. This is followed for two weeks out in the animal. So that's a pretty prolonged follow-up for an animal study that you do get improvements early on. But then it takes a long time to really recover, even if you look at a three hours of ischemia. But at six hours of ischemia, roughly 50% loss in neurovascular function if you had six hours of ischemia. The next part of their study was to look at what happened if the animal was in class three shock before the shunt was placed. And what you see is, is that there is a dramatic difference. So three hours is now closer to the six hours in terms of their physiologic measurements of recovery from the neuromuscular function. And six hours you know, you've got significant decrement. So I think that makes a difference when we're talking about times, especially when you're talking about casualty care movement. That's also probably one of the reasons why the Ukrainians, where they've had a much longer 
transport times from the Ford Battlefield to surgical care, their limb salvage rate has not been as good. Look to a couple of things on extremity trauma, looking at infectious complications in open type three tibial fractures, which was really a common injury for us, especially in Iraq. A lot of work done by the skeletal group and showing that there was significant infections early on in these kind of uh, complex wounds. The great thing that this group has done is they've continued to follow these same cohorts, these same patients year on and year out. And one of the really, I think, interesting things is that the deep infection rate was pretty high and osteomyelitis numbers in these casualties really increased every year that you followed them. So early on, osteo numbers were not as, as dramatic, but every year that we follow up, these casualties, we see that each year, some of these patients will pop up with a bone infection. Looking at, at some of their bacterial surveillance, as well as those wounds that were infected, what we see is that a large number of these early infections are gram negative. But when we get into late infections and those gram negatives kind of fall away, and really what we see is typically our gram positives that turn to be the long-term outcome problem child. Management of war wounds, amputations. Unfortunately, we've had huge experience with amputations. One paper just looking at 300 major lower extremity amputations that I pulled out a 53% overall reoperation rate, which is very high. Work done by Amber Rittenauer looking at casualties at long stool and complications after fasciotomy and showed that patients that did not get early fasciotomy tended to have more muscle excision, more amputation, and they tend to be correlated with a higher mortality. How you managing soft tissue wounds and what kind of solution to use has been looked at. The flow investigators have studied this and studied both at the ISR and in the research lab, but also taken out into the civilian world and using civilian casualties to try and, and, and generate some numbers. And so one of the things that these guys have shown is, is that for irrigation instance, the more you irrigate, the better you're going to be. And so the low pressure irrigation systems tended to have better outcomes. And I think this has actually changed. Early on in the war, we were using high pressure irrigation, and that probably led to more long-term injuries. How about functional output? There's been a lot of great work done, again, by the ISR, but also by some of our rehab facilities, like Center for the Intrepid. And one of them was on this orthosis design to try and improve functional output, comparing two really common devices that were out there for limb salvage. These typically were, again, we had a huge number of patients with tibial, fibular injuries. And in those casualties, their experience with some of the things on the market were not as good. The IDEO device was invented at the Center for the Intrepid. They did a lot of work with this device showing that if, if you integrate it, they'll just give it to the casualty, but you also integrate it into with a PT program. That tends to make a huge difference. Patients had significant improved ability to climb on stairs by using the IDO brace if they had the correct program that went along with it. There were a number of service members that were able to return to duty after being fitted with the integrated orthotic rehabilitation initiative. 
those casualties that were returned to duty, this has a huge impact, not only for that individual service mem- member, but also for the unit that they go back to. And the Ukrainians have been practicing what our lessons have been learned and pushing their casualties after rehab back into the combat theater after amputations or after significant rehab with specialized braces. Quickly about CCAT transport. As many of you may or may not know, CCAT did not exist prior to 1993. We did not have critical care transport on Air Force aircraft unless it was provided by a surgeon. So during the Battle of Mogadishu, we had the 46th Combat Support Hospital. John Holcomb happened to be one of the surgeons there. But they had to, one of their three surgeons had to leave the theater to go transport a shark patient by patient back to Lonstool. And then right after that, right after their departure, they ended up with the Battle of Mogadishu where they had 36 casualties and had all these major operations. And they're doing this with 33% force in terms of the surgeon. So everybody probably is familiar with how we manage our CCAT teams. But this all really came out of the Battle of Mogadishu. And I think if you had to go back and look at one event that has changed tactical combat casualty care, forward surgery, damage control surgery, pre-hospital care, it's probably going to come out of this one battle of battle Mogadishu because so much work has, has been generated from, from those lessons learned. Patients were being transported uh, super long distances. Really, these were unheard of. And we had a civilian surgeon, Bill Schwab, who was visiting us at Longstool back in 2006 or so. 2005, maybe. And he said, man, you guys are moving patients over a 10,000 mile distance that I wouldn't even consider moving down to the CT scanner in my own hospital. But we were kind of doing it a little bit out of necessity. There's a lot of things that had changed, which we added this acute lung rescue team at Longstool when we recognized that we had casualties that were not being able to be transported out of theater. And that, I think, has been a significant advance for bringing advanced critical care to the combat theater and moving patients even quicker. An example of just a pumpless extracorporeal lung assist that was not FDA approved at the time that we were using it. So we were going through a bunch of hoops to be able to use it, but a technique that we eventually honed down enough to where we felt safe in moving casualties on it. Another thing that we had done, and this was starting, I think it's an important thing and the Excelsior is probably going to be instrumental in helping drive this program and, and shape it over its future. And that was the Senior Visiting Surgeon Program. This is a paper that Margaret Peggy-Sunitsen sort of spearheaded on the early aspects of the program that we had set up. And this was bringing civilian senior surgeons to Longstool to sort of give us some insight, help us re- sort of refine what we were doing. Had many of these surgeons taken care of combat injuries? No. But in terms of developing a trauma system, they were sort of instrumental in helping us sort of jumpstart things along. We've continued that military civilian cooperation. And I think one of the things that we tried to do and have done successfully, and I think the JTS is just completing one of these now, but getting a military trauma system evaluated by civilian surgeons and seeing how we can do things differently, how we can do things better. Education, there's been a number of projects. We had the emergency war surgery course, 
which was a three-day course, lectures, animal labs, cadaver labs. And that has kind of morphed into some of these civilian courses now that have come out of that. One is the Adam course, which looked at the animal damage controlled surgery lab that we were using in the military. And then ASSET, which has also come out of the military experience. Mark Boyer has led this effort with ASSET. And now many of you are probably familiar with the ASSET Plus. New advances, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring in some of the early work that our vascular surgeons have done. One of the many, many new lessons that have been taken from both civilian world or prior military experience and made better. Some of the early work with Todd Rasmussen in developing the Robola catheter and implementing that in birth trauma, which is relatively a, although it was tried in Korea, it's been, and it's been refined by Rasmussen and now by many others to come up with some great technological innovations to make these balloons sit in the right space, go in now through even smaller catheters, introducers. Some of the early work that they were looking for was really trying to make these things self-centering so that they would stay within the center of the aorta. How you could do blind inflation. Again, this was all sort of revolutionary at the time that Todd and the team were working on that. So I think if you look at military casualty care now, and you look at some of the changes that have been out there, and these are just some of the highlights, but we're doing death studies. Uh, the JTS has been leading this and studying casualties outcomes and deaths and trying to decide what we can do better. Tourniquets have obviously made lots of changes, lots of improvements on the battlefield. So military trauma care definitely has changed from 1993 to 2012. A lot of significant improvements. A lot of these improvements have either had ideas on from the civilian world and then made it and been matured in the military setting or have been matured and developed in the military setting and then pushed out to the civilian world. This is also, again, that same period of time. And if you look at our, the, the number on the top is the injury severity score, which was slowly increasing throughout much of the conflict. But if you look at our cumulative killed in action, our cumulative died, our case fatality ratio in our died of wounds, you can see that despite a slow increase in our injury severity score, our killed in action, our died of wounds, which pretty much stayed the same, but our cumulative case fatality ratio continued to drop. And I think that's our goal and that needs to continue to be our goal. And how do we ultimately get to that preventable, zero preventable deaths? And that's why I said this is really historical, right? Because we had air superiority, we had short transport, relatively short transport times. If you look at how the Ukrainians are functioning with against the Russians right now, they don't have that. But they are saving lives. Tactical combat casualty care principles and training has been pushed out throughout the Ukrainian military. It is making huge differences in lives. And they count that as one of the things that's, that's helping them survive against the Russians as long as they have. I think we're going to have to completely look at everything that we've done under a totally different lens. Think about the, the, just our roll twos and our roll three facilities not being hard. The Russians are targeting medics on the battlefield, specifically using drones. They're targeting all hospital facilities. They're targeting forward surgical teams, specifically targeting these. If we go out with tents, we won't have a single medical personnel left after a week of conflict. 
to be able to take care of casualties. So all that needs to be rethought. So I'm going to finalize here. Remember, we had that talk from, or that paper that was written by Ben Iceman on military damage control experience. And I think by necessity, we've utilized it, practice it, we practice it well. And that's despite uh, discontinuity of care and evacuation over huge distances. But what it really takes is a well-honed machine to make that happen. And we didn't have that at first, but we do have that now. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team War Docs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.